0: To the Extent That is the American Bar Association Business Law Section's podcast series. Our podcasts provide general information. They aren't a substitute for legal advice from a licensed professional. We offer both standalone and serial podcasts on a variety of topics and welcome your feedback and suggestions at at americanbar.org. We hope you enjoy your selection.
1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to VC Law, a podcast brought to you by the American Bar Association. I'm your host, Gary Ross. Today we have with us Ingrid Pierce, Global Managing Partner and Head of the Cayman Investment Funds Group at Walker's, one of the top law firms for offshore funds. Ingrid, we are so happy to have you on the program today.
0: Thank you, Gary. It's great to be here and be
1: with you as well. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your background?
0: Sure. So I'm uh, an investment funds practitioner. I started off my professional career as a barrister in London, so litigated for about a decade, and I came over to Cayman, practiced Cayman law, uh, was admitted also in the British Virgin Islands, and have been based in Cayman for about 20 years, doing funds work uh, mostly non-contentious, but occasionally sometimes it gets a bit contentious.
1: That must be interesting. I did, yeah, we've worked together before. I did not know you had a litigation background. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, and it can be quite helpful to see things from a different perspective, what could go wrong when you're setting up the structure or negotiating agreements or or what have you. So I, I find it can come in quite useful. And of course, we've gone through the era of funds in distress, and we probably will go through that again sometime soon.
1: You know, it seems like when we work with offshore funds, uh, when we work with offshore law firms, everyone is from the United Kingdom or Canada. Is any attorney down there actually from the Cayman Islands?
0: <laughs> yes, we actually have a very uh, nice pipeline of really? uh, as, associates and partners who've come through the ranks, uh, gone to school here in Cayman, uh, done their qualifications. And uh, a lot of the time they will maybe go off to, to university or to law school somewhere else. but will happily come back and, and practice here. So that's a nice a nice thing for us as well to have some uh, trainees that have come through the programme. And of course, that's Cayman. We also operate in the British Virgin Islands and in Bermuda in, in the Caribbean jurisdictions and have uh, trainees that come through those programmes as well. And then we practice the laws of Ireland, Guernsey, Jersey uh, as, as well. So it's a nice uh, global practice with uh, lots of interesting laws that are outside
1: of the US and the UK. Oh, fantastic! And uh, when people want an offshore offshore vehicle, a lot of times it's for U.S. tax reasons. Uh, they're starting a fund and they want people outside the United, they want people outside the U.S. to invest. And then uh, they started asking them about, oh, what well, do you have an offshore uh, vehicle? And Cayman Island seems to be the first one that people that people mention. Can you talk about how that's uh, If it's become more pronounced lately, I mean, my understanding is like 30, 40 years ago, people didn't have the same view of Cayman Islands that they do now.
0: Yes, that's probably right. It's certainly a growing uh, industry and has continued to sort of expand in the last few years when the private funds were also required to register. So if you look at the sort of number of registered funds in Cayman, there are over 27,000 of which About 15,000 private funds and 13,000 open-ended funds. So, it is a very big jurisdiction, and undoubtedly, uh, in the world of offshore, the the largest by far Uh, for U.S. tax exempts and for non-U.S. investors, it is the primary jurisdiction. And if you look at the U.S. market, for example, SEC private fund statistics, which are published regularly, as you know, and there's there's pretty clear blue water between Cayman and the rest, so far as the U.S. is concerned about over 32% of funds managed by U.S. SEC-registered managers are domiciled in Cayman, and then there are, you know, very small percentages uh, uh, in other offshore jurisdictions. So Cayman certainly a jurisdiction of choice so far as the funds are concerned, but, you know, there are multitudes of reasons for people wanting to structure through Cayman, and it's a tax-neutral jurisdiction. So I think the best way to describe it is uh, the, the vehicle itself is not subject to taxation, distributions in the hands of investors are uh, obviously depending on their own tax residence. so it's paid uh, along the way and in the jurisdiction of the investor but not while it's in uh, the the relevant jurisdiction like cayman so if you're an investor or an investment manager doing complex international business multiple structures multiple countries it's finding the most efficient way to structure a deal without paying double tax or incurring
1: unnecessary expenditure and I used to wonder when I would hear, oh, Cayman, you know, no tax, no tax jurisdiction. I'd be like, you know, what is the Cayman government just doing this for free? Uh, and then I got, <laughs> I got a little bit older and uh, they're, um, they make all their money on the fees, correct? I know there's a bunch of government fees when you set up a fund. Uh,
0: yes, nothing is free. So that's right. <laughs> uh, fees are paid both for incorporating and keeping vehicles in existence, much as you would in most Places in the world, you have to have a a registered office or in the BVI registered agent, and you also, if you're regulated, there are fees paid to the regulator to uh, keep the fund in existence, pay for its administration, and so on. So uh, there's that, and of course there are plenty of um, duties that are payable in the local jurisdiction if you uh, happen to live there. So uh, it's it's tax efficient, put it
1: that way. Right. Yeah. That's great. well great. Well, let's go right into it. Why don't you talk about the various the various entity structures that um, uh, that that you all are that are available in the Cayman Islands?
0: Sure. So most common as you know, and we've worked on a number of structures structured as exempted limited companies. That's probably the most common for an open-ended fund structure. Closed-ended vehicles tend to use a So if you're a private equity vehicle, that would be the most popular structure. And then Came and also introduced the LLC some years ago. And that vehicle is not dissimilar actually from a Delaware LLC, tends to be used most commonly as a general partner or as a holding structure uh, rather than the fund vehicle itself. Uh, But the choice of vehicle that you use is really market driven and investor driven, uh, but can also just be be because it's become very popular and entrenched and it's what investors are used to seeing. Uh, you know, we also have uh, a segregated portfolio company structure, which is not quite like the uh, Delaware series, but does have statutory segregation in the sense that it's a single legal entity, but each portfolio within it can have uh, statutory segregation and have different portfolios typically used for something like a multi-strategy fund where you want investors to be able to go into different portfolios and to swap through portfolios, but be in the same legal entity. So so that's another structure. And then finally, the other one I'd mentioned is the unit trust, which is probably less utilized by uh, US clients, but very popular with Japanese investors uh, holding unitized interests and getting their distributions in that way. And we set up a lot of those structures for institutional sponsors. They might have U.S. managers, but ultimately investors coming in from Japan. So that's another structure. It's not statutorily segregated, but it is set up to have contractual segregation between the subtrusts of the unit trust.
1: Wow, that's a lot of information. Thank you, Ingrid. (laughs) Um, Let's go back to, you mentioned exempted for a exempted limited company, I believe was the first one. So Mm. can you tell the audience what exactly is it exempt from? What, what, what? What does exempt mean there?
0: So it's exempted from uh, taxation for a period of uh, years. People would normally apply for a certificate to evidence that, so up to 30 years. Uh, And it's also a sign that it is doing business outside of the Cayman Islands. So it is incorporated within the Cayman Islands, but primarily for the purpose of doing business outside of it, rather than a local company which would uh, be doing business within the Cayman Islands. So that's that sort of vehicle as you would imagine, it's a limited company, so limited by shares and limited liability for the shareholders, must have a board of directors and so forth. And there are some rules around that if you're regulated.
1: Okay. Yeah. You had mentioned regulated before. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, Like, are these entities that you named, are all those, can you be regulated and non-regulated for each of the entities? Or when you say that you have a regulated entity, does that necessarily mean that you're, you're one of these entities?
0: Most structures are now regulated, both private funds and uh, open-ended hedge fund structures. There are very limited exceptions to that if you uh, don't have any, uh, if you only have, for example, one investor, or or if you are uh, conducting business other than a fund business, so you're not a pooled investment structure, principally regulated by the Cayman Islands Monetary Authority. And if you're doing business here, for example, if you were to set up a management company or a, a Cayman Incorporated general partner, then of course you would also uh, be subject to uh, certain regulation if you're acting as an investment advisor or conducting securities investment business. So uh, the 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 short answer is most are regulated. There are rules around what you have to do to become registered and to keep up with the, the ongoing activities. So um, just get some good advisors and uh, they'll they'll steer you in the right direction.
1: <laughs> it's probably a little bit of a uh, uh, I don't know about red flag, but maybe a little bit of a yellow flag if somebody wants to set up a Cayman entity and they haven't really talked to their investors. They're just setting it up, hoping that the investors will come and be okay with whatever they they set up. Would you agree with that?
0: Yes, if you haven't done it before, then absolutely caution is uh, wise to to find out what structure is going to be most suitable. And also, uh, whether the investors want to be in a pooled vehicle because as you know, that doesn't isn't always the case. and sometimes right. investors want their own sleeve or their own special yeah. entity and so on.
1: okay and and uh, for the limited partnerships, one question we get a lot is whether the person is going to need a um, an offshore general partner or investment manager, whether they can keep their Delaware LLC and just use that as the general partner and, and are the investment manager.
0: Yes, the answer is you can, which is one of the uh, good, flexible things about the jurisdiction you can have and is pretty common, actually. The most common is to have a non Cayman general partner, so typically a Delaware LLC. Most often, clients will set up a new structure to act as the general partner, so there's no contagion with other existing structures unless it's part of a big conglomerate or a master feeder structure, which has the same general partner for each of the partnerships, but no need to be... Cayman, the only thing that does happen is uh, that vehicle has to be registered in Cayman as what we call a foreign company. So there's some um, government registrations around it, but it can still be the USGP. And that's the same for the investment manager. In fact, I would say probably in the order of 90% would have a a non-Cayman investment manager. How burdensome
1: is that registration?
0: Extremely easy. Uh, you can be oh, okay. incorporated, or incorporated or registered within pretty much twenty four hours, as long as you've got the right documents.
1: Oh, okay. And uh, talk to me about kind of local requirements. One question we get: Well, are we going to have to have a Cayman director? Are we going to have mm-hmm. someone going to have to move there? And sometimes people volunteer to move there. Uh, but uh, what are the uh, what 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 are the requirements in terms of like actually having a presence in in the Caymans? Uh, it's
0: lovely to have people move and have boots on the ground, but <laughs> actually not required. And mm. although it is an market practice to have Cayman based directors on a fund, and that is over two thirds of funds will have directors that are both independent of the investment manager and based in a jurisdiction of the domicile of the fund. So you probably would have two independent directors and possibly one associated with the manager. And typically, the independent directors would be Cayman or or somewhere else. Uh, However, it's not actually a legal requirement. So people can have directors that are both in their own jurisdictions or affiliated with the investment manager. It's more of an investor issue, really, as to whether they're looking for independent governance and uh, how that ought to uh, be set up with directors and oversight that's
1: not part of the management company. I'm always impressed with the quality of the directors, the potential directors. Every time we need a director down there, like we get all these resumes and it's just amazing. They're all like just just sterling resumes. Uh must just be, I mean, sometimes I feel like there's just director candidates and lawyers down in town in the Cayman Islands.
0: There are lots of directors who have experience in other industries before they became independent directors. So many of the professional services institutions whether they are uh, accountants auditors they've done um, practiced as lawyers or been in some other area of governance bankers and so on will do do that as a professional business so the quality and the experience is usually pretty high
1: yeah well tell us a little bit about like what drives whether someone is going to be in 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 jersey or you know bvi i guess In particular, Cayman and BVI is one uh, question that we get, hey, what are the pros and cons of that? And some of these other jurisdictions, like what would drive you all to recommend that someone not have a Cayman fund, that you have one of these other jurisdictions?
0: The choice is always investor-driven and that's because it will depend on what the benefits are for them to structure in a particular place. Uh, There are also some of the providers might be, for example, if you're based in Europe, uh, even if you wanted to invest through a particular type of structure, there may be an intermediary or a manager or principal that's based in one of those other jurisdictions. And it's actually just uh, easier and uh, a better structure to hold that uh, particular investment through, for example, a Jersey or a Guernsey structure. But for Cayman, the choice is usually uh, because we're talking about uh, U- a US market, so very North American and Asia based market that looks to use Cayman as a structure. It's obviously a sophisticated jurisdiction, well developed legislative framework, and so on, all based on English law. And as between Cayman and BVI, they're both uh, popular and well understood jurisdictions. I would say that. BVI, similar rules apply. There are some differences. It's considered less expensive from a uh, regulatory perspective, so it tends to appeal more to startups. And for market share, BVI has about 1% of the uh, US registrar managers that set up in BVI, whereas in Cayman, as I was saying earlier, it's it's over 32%. So uh, Cayman tends to be more used as a funds jurisdiction and BVI more as a a company jurisdiction for other purposes. Uh, But both are uh, well known. And the other, of course, advantage is having the sorts of service providers that have international standards and uh, both that are well regulated with sensible regulators. I think the other thing that investors and particularly investment management industry is looking for is a stability in a jurisdiction where you know that uh, the rule of law applies. And if there is an issue and you have to litigate, that uh, those cases will go through a, a competent court that the courts of the jurisdiction are familiar with financial services and dealing with investment funds, which obviously they are, and have many, um, many of the well-known cases, both in uh, corporate law, investment funds, and uh, frankly, in the insolvency space related to investment funds have been litigated in both jurisdictions. And the final court of appeal is to the Privy Council in London. So I think market participants generally have high confidence in the jurisdiction
1: talk a little bit about KYC. Um, my understanding is the KYC is a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word, uh, thorough in the Cayman Islands versus the other jurisdictions. Is that true or is that just kind of something that's gotten out there somehow?
0: KYC is the bane of uh, most people's lives at the moment. It's certainly... <laughs> a very high requirement in Cayman and perhaps contrary to what people might think is uh, much more onerous than it is in the United States. I would Mm -hmm. say it's a sort of trap for the unwary if you are not ready to produce all of that information. Obviously, these jurisdictions are very concerned to make sure that people not just know their customers, but have all the relevant information to ensure that that uh, information is both current and that uh, they don't have any issues or red flags themselves. So, the, once you get used to it, it's fine, but it does take time and the <laughs> compliance burden is high. So something else to to watch out for if you're talking about uh, knotty issues or things that people might not expect that are going to take longer than they think.
1: Now, out of all the jurisdictions that Walkers is located in, is KYC most thorough in the Cayman Islands or is there another jurisdiction that is right there even more so?
0: I would say all of the jurisdictions have high requirements. If you look at, for example, Ireland, uh, mm-hmm. the requirements there are no less onerous and uh, the regulators obviously are very thorough. So it, it's uh, it's, not a, it's not a case of anybody trying to go to a different jurisdiction because of KYC requirements. I think it's just a global issue.
1: Okay. Uh, does BVI BVI's KYC is similar to, to Cayman Islands?
0: Yes, uh, they do. They also have a pre-approval registration regime for funds. Uh, it does happen quite quickly, you can get approved by the regulator within about a week yeah. sometimes, but nevertheless it is a pre-approval as opposed to a pure registration regime. so yeah, all the jurisdictions have got their own requirements.
1: All right, well let's talk about how much time to set up a uh, uh, set up an offshore vehicle uh, when people when you get the call in, either from the law firm or from a, uh, a potential client, uh, will you, what do you' all tell them in terms of how much time it's going to take to uh, set up an investment vehicle and get it up and running?
0: It can take as little as a month. Uh, That would depend on how far the investment manager has already been established, how experienced they are, whether they have all of their own uh, entities and structures set up already. If they've pre-negotiated agreements with their administrator and their auditor, they know who they're going to be. Those things take the most amount of time. Uh, If it's a repeat sort of transaction, then obviously that can be very fast. But if you're mm-hmm. starting from scratch, it's more likely to be two months and could be quite a lot longer if those agreements have not yet been negotiated. And if there's you know, particular side letters that have to be signed on day one, all of that takes quite a bit longer.
1: Mm-hmm. And if people are looking to set up an, an, um, an offshore investment vehicle, whether Caymans or somewhere else, what are some pitfalls or trouble points that they should be aware of? Things that would help you all out kind of for them to, to already know or be prepared for?
0: Oh, lovely question. Uh, People, I I think, underestimate a a little bit how long the onboarding process takes, not just for firms, uh, whether Mm -hmm. it's in the US or in Cayman or wherever, but also uh, of their other service providers. So uh, administrators making sure that they know what services they provide, who is going to do the AML, is it going to be the administrator who will take that on, who's going to act as the AML officers, is the client uh, qualified to do it themselves, all those sorts of things so lots around governance i think people could pay a little bit more attention to and uh, of course taking the time to ensure that you have the right composition on the board if it's a corporate vehicle uh, that you go through that selection process with some care and that you have the right mix of skills for the nature of the fund strategy one mm-hmm. other point i'd probably make is um we, we get asked a lot about uh the terms when a fund is being set up and people Tend to say it's all very straightforward. Uh, there won't be any sort of special deals, <laughs> <Right. laughs> and uh, the, the terms are going to be the terms. There's going to be a certain degree of liquidity, and we have found uh, just looking at the fund surveys that we do of our own clients, and what has been popular, is that redemption periods can be quite frequent. And obviously, that's great from an investor perspective. But if the underlying assets in the portfolio don't really match the liquidity, then you can have a problem. So we always advise clients to try to put in as much as they can in terms of mechanisms to manage liquidity if the time is needed. And that time could, could be at any time during the life of the fund. And it's no longer a sort of last resort, although nobody wants to do it. But you need to have those uh, mechanisms in place in the documents, otherwise you, you won't be able to uh, control the flow of liquidity when when it's needed. So I would say the rules change, market practice evolves. So just get the right experts, get the advice from the horse's mouth, and don't rely on you know rumor or anecdote, uh, otherwise you could go badly wrong.
1: Now, how hard is it to change a term uh, after, uh, you know, m- maybe not midstream, but after a couple of years? You know, here in the US, we don't have to file File our PPM, right? So it's not the best thing to like change a term while like you're talking about, you know, investment period or something else. If they need that, you know, we, we can amend the LPA. Obviously, we need investor consent most of the time, but it's not like we have to do a government filing or anything like that. I know some jurisdictions, Mauritius, you've got to actually file the PPM. Now, in Cayman Islands, if somebody wanted to change, let's say, a fundamental term in the um, uh in 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 a document um is that a difficult process is there any government filing that has to be due or is it kind of like here you just need investor consent
0: not difficult but you do have to file uh, any material amendments to the ppm within a a short period of time, and obviously go through the process of making sure investors are notified. If it is something fundamental, as you would in the US, you get the relevant thresholds of consent. If you also need to change your constitutional documents, so your memorandum and articles of association, which hopefully you don't if they've got enough flexibility in them when they're first drafted, but if there's a term that's baked into the articles that needs to be changed, yes, you have to get a shareholder's resolution in order to do that, and when I say shareholder, it depends on who controls the votes, but the voting shareholder has to consent to that change and that must be refiled.
1: Okay. Um, talk to us a little bit about management shares and allocation shares. That's come up in our practice a little bit um, uh, lately um, in, in regards to segregated portfolio of companies. And so we get the question of whether the management shares can be split, allocation shares, You know how they're doled out and whether the fees kind of follow that. And I'm really not super familiar with the whole uh, management shares and allocation shares. Uh, So if you could uh, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Sure. The management shares are typically issued to the investment manager or an affiliate. And for the most part, they would carry the share rights. So they would have the right to vote, but not economic rights. So that doesn't necessarily follow. And you'd pay the management fee as a contractual matter. Under the investment management agreement, an allocation share could be issued for the purpose of receiving the allocation. And so that would more closely track uh, the actual fee that you described, although it could be paid by a different mechanism. So there are different ways to build it in. And uh, I would say the most common that we would see is a management uh, share, but not itself carrying anything other than voting rights.
1: And is that relevant only for segregated portfolio companies or for all the entities that you talked about before? All the corporate entities. All right. Well, great. Well, Ingrid, thank you so much. Is there anything else that will be helpful for, uh, for folks to know?
0: No, thank you, Gary. That was great. Lovely chatting with you. And I, I would say, as I said at the beginning, people have questions if they want to speak to walkers. That's terrific. Or their own advisors just take advice and uh, that will be your best guide.
1: All right, well, Ingrid, thank you so much for joining us today. This was really interesting and um, uh, topical, and uh, we hope to have you on the show again. And uh, enjoy the rest of your enjoy the rest of your day. Many thanks, Gary. Nice to chat. Yeah, and to the listeners, thank you for joining us for another episode of VC Law, brought to you by the American Bar Association.
0: Thank you for listening to the ABA Business Law Sections podcast series. To the extent that. The section offers a robust collection of content. To explore more about this topic, or to learn about joining the section, visit ambar.org bizlaw. That's B-I-Z-L-A-W.